Let's pray as we come to the word this morning. Heavenly Father, we just thank you. What a privilege it is for us to know you, to know your love, to know your peace, to have hope in you, our security in you, that you are our fortress and our refuge. Lord, in times of trouble, there is no one like you. There is no love like your love. As we come to your word this morning, Heavenly Father, we ask that your spirit would speak into our hearts. Lord, that we may know that love a little more deeply, a little more authentically. Lord, that we may see your love imprinted on our hearts and on our minds. Amen. This morning, we're continuing our series, Kingdom Living, looking at Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 through 7. We're following on from last week's message on the fulfillment of the law, but we're not done with the law just yet. When we think about the law, we see a lot of do's and don'ts, don't we? A lot of right and wrong. We look at it as a, a checklist of things that show us the boundaries so we know how far we can go before we get in trouble. Take, for example, the speed limit. The letter of the law tells us that we're not allowed to go one kilometre over the posted speed limit. The purpose of speed limits is to set a safe speed for the conditions of the road and the area that we're driving in. The natural temptation for us is to want to be able to drive right up to the boundary of the law. So we drive right up to the posted limit as often, as frequently as we possibly can. And then we hear that our speedometers are calibrated by law to actually post us going a little faster than what we are. And so when they're saying that we're going at 100 k's an hour... We might actually be going at 99 or 98 or 97 kilometers an hour. And because we know that we're actually a few k's under, we, we can push our speedometer to go a few k's over, knowing that we're not breaking the law because the law isn't what my speedometer says. The law is what I'm actually going. So we push a little farther. We want to go right at the speed limit. This is an example of how we look at laws. We see them as an inconvenience, as a restriction, as like a, a chokehold on us. Speed limits are frustrating because they prolong the time that it takes me to get where I'm going. You know, government regulation, it just makes life more difficult. We see laws as barriers stopping us getting where we want, us, want to go. Sometimes they stop us getting there as quickly as we want or getting what we want without having to uh, uh, be imposed extra financial burdens. There are some reasons we want to push right up against the letter of the law as far as we can go. And then... Maybe we just dip our toes just a little bit over the other side. Because it only really matters if we get caught, right? Like, what does it really matter if I'm doing 105 kilometers in a 100 zone? 
the speed camera, are they, are they really going to ping me at 105, 106? So, so we push just that little bit more, don't we? Because it's our right to go as fast as we feel we should be able to. And then when we get stuck behind a, a slower vehicle, we're driven to push those boundaries again. And we've all seen it, especially up here on, on North Queensland roads where someone's frustrated behind a, a slower moving vehicle and they see their opportunity and they pull out and they overtake. The number of times I've seen someone overtaking in a blind corner at a blind hill or in wet conditions. And the rationale that goes through our minds when we put ourselves in that position is they're robbing me of my right to go at the speed limit. I deserve to be able to go faster than this. And so we, we justify pushing the boundaries of the law. But what if the point of the speed limits were to guide safe driving practices? So that the heart of these laws was to guide us not to think about how fast am I allowed to drive, but how fast is necessary in order to be safe. Have you ever actually taken the time to work out how much time being behind a slower vehicle is costing you? How much time going that extra few kilometres an hour takes? Like how much it saves? Let me give you some. I've done the calculations. If we were driving for 100 kilometres at 100 kilometres an hour, how long is it going to take us to get to our destination? One hour. If we uh, go a little faster, say 105 kilometres, how much time do you think you'll save? Five minutes. Like that's, that's your go-to sort of like, that's, that's a good approximation, I reckon. Five minutes? No. It's under three minutes. Less than three minutes. Over an hour. Is it really worth it? Think about all those moments of frustration for three minutes. Let's go the other way though. Let's say that we were going um, under the speed limit, 5Ks under, so 95Ks an hour, they're the worst. When you're looking at your speedo and you're going, it's 95, we should be able to do 100, they're going so slow. How much longer is it gonna take you to get to your destination? Just a little bit over three minutes. A little bit over three minutes. Let's put it in a context driving around town. Like let's say you want to go five kilometers at 60 k's an hour. How long is that going to take you to get to where you want to go? Five minutes. Right? 60 k's an hour, 60 minutes in an hour. So five minutes. What if you're stuck behind someone going at 50? I get this all the time. I get frustrated. And then when, this week when I did it, I'm like, Nick, you're an idiot. <laughs> if you're stuck behind someone the entire way going at 50, 10 kilometers under the speed limit, one-sixth of your speed is being taken away from you. Do you know how long you've lost? It's going to take you one minute extra. 60 seconds. It takes me longer to get in the car to adjust the height of the seat 
because my wife's found out that there's a little lever that pumps the seat up so that she can see over the winds <laughs> over the steering wheel and the steering wheel I've got to adjust the steering wheel and then adjust the mirror it takes me more time to get in the car and set up than what it would cost me if I just relaxed and drove it 50 safely behind it if I engaged with the heart and the intent of the law ultimately it comes down to how are we willing and how are we prepared and how are we going to approach the law do we see it primarily as our right to walk right up to the limit right up to the boundary to press up against it or do we see it as an opportunity to engage with the intent engaging with the heart of the law means that we've got to surrender some things we've got to surrender maybe a little bit of time maybe a little bit of our convenience and maybe even a little bit of our money in order to engage with the heart of the law. If you're a normal kind of person, chances are that you feel a little bit uncomfortable with, with those kind of sacrifices, those kind of inconveniences. It's our right. They can't take away our rights. You feel that? Just that little bit of uncomfortableness about that? That's understandable. Especially when we're dealing with imperfect laws written by imperfect people. But as we're going to see today, these things, speed limits and and the costs incurred about doing life in a secular world, dealing with government legislation. We're going to see that these things are small and insignificant when compared with the cost of following Jesus and living in God's law. God's perfect law. God's righteous and holy law. A law that reveals to us his goodness, a law that reveals to us his holiness and, and his perfection and a law that exposes our brokenness and sinfulness. Last week we saw that Jesus had said that he'd come to fulfill the law but that didn't mean that he was there to abolish it or to replace it or to, to, to write it off. He said the law stands, every letter of the law still stands. But the cost of the law, I've fulfilled that. I've fulfilled that. What he taught was that he took the penalty of the law in order to give us the opportunity to engage with the heart of the law. He paid the penalty of the law to allow us to live out the heart of the law. Many, many Christians, for many of us, we've been taught an over, oversimplified explanation of what it means to follow Jesus, what it means to be a Christian, what it means to repent. We've been taught that it's, it's basically, look, so long as you admit that you've made mistakes, that you've sinned, that you believe that Jesus is God's son and that he died for you, then you're all good, right? Right? Who's, who's heard that kind, like that's the gospel that you've heard? Many of us ha have been, yeah, I, I didn't see many hands because you know that I'm about to say that, that was, that's not quite right. 
It's not, not completely wrong, but it, it falls so far short of what the Bible teaches us about what it is to repent, what it is to follow Jesus. I mean, Jesus said, if you want to follow me, take up your cross. If you want to follow me, take up your cross. We've been told it's a free gift. I want to tell you it's not. It's not a gift that we can pay for, but it's certainly not free. It will cost you everything you've got. That's the price. You have to surrender everything. Everything. So let, let me explain a little bit about what, what it means to repent. God's law, you see, shows us God's ways. It shows us God's righteousness. We can look at it as a list of boundaries, stopping us going where we want to go. or We can look deeper into the heart of the law and see the life, the way God intends us to live. See, being a, being a Christian is not about getting to a destination. Being a Christian isn't about getting to a place. Being a Christian is about receiving the best relationship we can ever have, the relationship with the Almighty God, the Creator of the heavens and the earth, the universe, everything. He wants a relationship with us. It's not some kind of sanitized building. He wants intimacy. He, he wants things to be up close. You know, think... In the middle of summer, old church buildings, no air conditioning, poor airflow. Middle of summer, everyone is crammed in shoulder to shoulder and it's sweaty. Like, that's intimacy. You know, it's hot, it's sweaty, it's, it's right up in your business. You know, that's the kind of intimacy God wants he wants us to, to be completely bound to him in the mess that we feel life is, not sanitized. He wants to be completely engaged and that means that we've got to engage with him. But when we look at this, this weak version of the gospel, it says, look, all you've got to do is, is admit that you're, you're, you've done some things wrong, um, believe that Jesus is God, that he died for you and then play nice mostly come to church on Sunday and and you'll be right when when you die or when Jesus returns you'll get into heaven right no no see that what that means is that I just keep going on and living my life my way and Jesus says that's not repentance repentance is not just simply turning away from our sin repentance is turning towards God let me give you an example, uh, uh, an, an analogy of what this would be like. I get my, my dream 4x4, turbo diesel Land Cruiser. Take it down to fill up and I put petrol in it. Have to get it towed back to the, the dealer same day. And they're like, we told you. If you put petrol in this car, you'll ruin it. If you want to do things your own way, you're going to ruin what I have given you, what I have, have, have made for you. 
But you see, they're, they're a really generous dealer. They're gracious. They have compassion on me and, and they rebuild the engine. Cheers, guys. Thanks for that. Driving down the road. Oh, they didn't put any fuel in. Pull in. I put some more petrol in it. Like, no, I didn't. This is a hypothetical. <laughs> but how, how would they treat me? You know, what would that mean for my relationship with them? I guarantee you they would void my warranty. And if they have half a brain cell, they would not touch my car with a barge pole. They wouldn't service it. They wouldn't fix it. And it's the same with our relationship with God. We're not saved by our effort. We're not saved by how well we can live out our Christian life. We're saved by the blood of Jesus alone. Christ alone. But how do we know? What is the test? What is the measure for us to know, Lord, am I really saved? Have you ever questioned, like, am I really saved? Can it be that simple? It's not about how perfect we can live out the law, because we can never live the law in its perfection. It has to do with our heart, our desire. Are we willing, do we desire to live God's way? Or our own way? Do we, do we desire to put petrol in a diesel engine? That's like putting sin in a, in a life that is righteous. It doesn't make sense. You know, do we make space in our life for sin? Or do we make space for God? These, these are the questions we can ask ourselves to test. Where is the attitude of my heart towards God? Am I looking for a quick fix that'll get me where I want to be? Or have I genuinely engaged with the heart of God's righteousness, the heart of God's law, and deeply desire to be made whole again? Paul puts it brilliantly in Romans 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? You see, it doesn't matter how imperfectly I live out God's laws. It doesn't matter how many times I keep on sinning. God's grace is sufficient and abundant to cover all of my sin. And there were some in Paul's time that were saying, well, I'm, doing, I'm actually doing God a favor by sinning. Right? Because the more I sin, the more he forgives me, which means that he's, he's an even more forgiving God. Messed up, Right? And so, so Paul uses some of the most strong language in the Bible when he says in verse 2, by no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or do you, not, or do you know that those of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism in death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly be united with him in resurrection like his. He's saying, if we are genuinely followers of Jesus, lay down your life. Lay down your desires. Lay down life 
your way. You see, because as a sinful man, we have, or, or woman, we have a tendency to cut corners. We have a tendency to prioritize our comfort and our convenience. And, and sometimes we even conform God's word to meet our comfort and convenience. We distort it, we change it. Paul's saying, that's not on. That's not what it means to follow. Jesus says, and we're going to look at this in a few weeks' time, in, in Matthew 7, 16, you will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear fruit, uh, bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will re- recognize them by their fruits. If you are a Christian here, if you believe yourself to be a follower of Jesus, heed these words with great warning. If there is not the fruit of the law of God in your heart, then maybe there's some dead wood, some disease that needs to be cut out. Maybe there's some repentance that needs to be made, some true repentance that needs to be made. James says in two, James 2.17, faith without deeds is dead. If there is a genuine move of the work of the Holy Spirit in your life, if you have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus, if you've come to the cross and said, God, I am a sinner, I am broken, my way is lost and your way is right, then there will be transformation. There will be a change in the way you view life, the way you view uh, the world, the way you view people, the way you act, the way you speak, the way you talk. So we have received the the fulfillment of the righteousness of the law in Jesus. But the heart of the law needs to become imprinted on our hearts and bound to our minds. When Jesus was asked, what is the fundamental, basic, most important law? What did he say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your mind and all your strength. And the second is love your neighbor as yourself. This sums up all the law of the prophets. He was quoting Deuteronomy chapter 6, where God says to Israel, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind and strength. Teach this to your children. Write it on your doorposts and bind it between the frontlets of your eyes. On the back of your hand. It's symbolic. Bind it on your mind. Bind it with your actions. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind and strength. We can't live the law out perfectly. But we can learn and desire to engage with the law in its heart, the heart of the law. So ask yourself, what matters most? My way or God's way? Me being right and having all the answers? Or me allowing God to correct me and and to lead me and to change me? Repentance means surrendering my way and turning towards God every day 
in every way. You know, there are times where, where God challenges me and he says, Nick, what you just said to that person, that's, that's not my way. Or, or it might be, Nick, what you just said, that was, that was true, but I've really got an issue with how you said it. And the test for me, where is my heart? Is do I want to say, it's, it's important for me, God, to be right. And so I'm going to dig my heels in and I'm going to be stubborn. I'm going to do things my way. Or am I going to humble myself, gratefully, thankfully, work with the Holy Spirit, surrender my pride and make things right, live God's way. In our passage today, Jesus shows us some more of what it means to engage with the heart of the law. But more importantly, what is expected of someone who wants to follow Jesus and how we should be shaped by the law. If you have your Bibles, open with me to Matthew chapter 5, verse 21 to 48. <clears throat> we have a series of examples Jesus uses a pattern, he, he, he quotes the letter of the law and follows it by unpacking it. He says, you have heard it said, and then he follows it up by saying, but I say to you, so watch for that pattern. And he also presents, uh, there, there are six things here and he presents them in pairs. Verse 21, you have heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the fire of hell. You see how Jesus is taking, uh, decreasing uh, what we would consider less and less serious sin. And he's saying, look, if, if, if you say, you fool... You place yourself at risk of the fire of hell. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and then there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you will be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you'll never get out until you have paid the last penny. Then he continues, you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go to hell. The purpose of these examples is to show us how far we can go before we have committed an offense against the law. But to show us that what matters to God is to grasp the intent and the heart of the law. Unbridled anger leads to reckless words that cause all sorts of damage. They can lead to bitterness and even hatred. 
This is not so much about knowing the line between angry and taking a person's life, but understanding the difference between our sinful anger and God's patience and love. When we allow our emotions to drive us towards anger and lust, we don't engage with others the way God wants us to. And, And worse than that, we don't engage with the heart of God. How can we know God's love and patience if we are driven by anger and bitterness? The two cannot come together. The second two have to do with commitment and covenant. Verse 31. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her a her commit adultery and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery again you have heard it said to those of old you shall not swear falsely but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn but I say to you do not take an oath at all either by heaven for it is the throne of God or by earth for it is his footstool or by Jerusalem for it is the city of the great king do not take an oath by your head for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. The second two examples Jesus used to demonstrate the importance of our decisions and the importance of covenant. That's a a very strong word in the Bible. When we find it used in the Old Testament, God has has taken a word that was used to describe a shackle that bound a slave in slavery to describe the freedom that we have in relationship with him, but also the, the type of intimacy that we should have with him, that in our relationship with God, we should be bound to him, shackled to him. And Jesus Jesus wants to impart beyond the letter of the law the intent that we understand the significance of our decisions and our commitments. You see, too easily we can be swayed by our convenience or our passions and our desires. We can say one thing and make a commitment and then a little while later we change our mind. For many things this this is not a problem. But here Jesus gives some clear examples of when it should not be seen as a light or easy choice. I've been asked before, is divorce okay? There's no simple answer to that question because there are so many complex issues around divorce. It's very delicate and complicated. But often what that question fails to address is what is meant by marriage. when we fail to appreciate the value and the purpose of marriage when we fail to live up to the covenant that we have made that divorce becomes an issue marriage is designed to be a partnership built on the commitment to know one another it was created to provide a space for a man and a woman to grow to be empowered encouraged loved unconditionally supported forgiven sharpened and helped marriage represents the most significant covenant that we make in our lives and it is the best example that god has to demonstrate to us the value of our relationship and our commitment to him 
This is why Jesus emphasizes the importance of, of commitment. We can't simply say today that I'll be a Christian and tomorrow I'll ignore God and do things my way. It cannot be considered a buffet. Christianity can't be considered a buffet where you pick and choose the things that you like and you leave the things that you don't. Following Jesus is, is all in or not at all. It is a, a commitment that we don't take lightly and not one that we should be able to change our mind of easily. A final two deal with how we respond when we have been wronged and mistreated. You've heard it said that uh, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. I like to uh, use a different illustration to explain the heart of this, turn the other cheek. Go and hug a cactus. Anyone want to hug a cactus? Why not? Because you, you know the moment you wrap your arms around, embrace this cactus, every fiber of your being is going to be shooting with pain. It's going to cause you pain and hurt. Loving those who hurt you, guess what? It's going to hurt. Forgiving those who do you wrong, guess what? It's going to cost. It's going to be painful. Turning the other cheek isn't some noble gesture. Turning the other cheek requires drastic humility. Incredible grace and unconditional love. In verse 40, he says, If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. What Jesus is trying to do here is lift our idea of priorities to what really matters. We place all sorts of value in our clothing, in our possessions, in our pride and personal, how people view us. But none of that matters. None of that matters when the creator of heaven and earth says, this is my child whom I love. What does it matter when, when someone reviles us and, and ridicules us or persecutes us? When Jesus is standing there and says, I died for them. That's what we have. That is our, our value and our pride. We boast in who Jesus is. And he finishes off. You've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and send rains on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same? And if, if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. It grieves me that when I look at the church in the West, we fail 
desperately in this. We, when we feel the pressure of a secular world around us, our words bite back with spite and bitterness instead of love and compassion and gentleness. We don't pray for the sinners. We don't pray for those who persecute us and who, who say all kinds of evil against us. We have a tendency to pray against them. Have you noticed that? Where does Jesus say and pray against those who hate you? If that was the case, he would never have come. If we want to engage with the heart of the law, we need to engage desperately with the heart of God that bears all things. What difference can we make in a world where we simply act the same way as the broken and sinful? What it means to follow Jesus is to desperately desire his heart, to pursue his righteousness, not to see the law, God's law, as, as some kind of inconvenience and dry and, 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 and some kind of thing that, that just sh shows how bad I am, but something that draws us into the intimacy of his love, that we may know his love, his love for the lost, the lost that hurt us, the lost that revile us and the lost that persecute us. Where is your heart this morning? Is it in need of a little bit more repentance? Maybe you're encouraged by this this morning. You're encouraged because perhaps for the first time in a long time you've heard a message that, that resonates with your heart. It says, Lord, this is, this is what I felt Christianity to be. This is what it's meant for me. But for so long, I've just heard a, a weak gospel that allows people to call themselves Christians without actually making the change in their heart. In all things, our hearts should be turned to prayer, to pray for our own brokenness and to pray for the brokenness of those around us. So I invite you to join me this morning as we, we respond to this word from God through prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we look to your word, as we look to your law, your righteous, holy law, Lord, we, we acknowledge that we are sinners. We are broken we are conflicted by the, the tension between our, our own sinful and selfish desires, desires driven by our passion, desires driven by our comfort, desires driven by convenience. We're, we're, we're torn between these desires and a desire to follow you, to know you, and to be transformed once again into your likeness, into your righteousness and holiness, Lord, to live a life that brings honour to your name. To live a life that reflects as best as we can the righteousness that you have given us through Jesus. So Lord, our prayer this morning is, is simple. Help us 
and transform us. Lord, take us each and every day and lead us in your ways, we pray. Amen.